Sex is not the topic of this morning's sermon. <laughs> it was the topic of last week's sermon. Perhaps if we were uh, planning things out a bit uh, better, we would have put sex talk on the morning of uh, spring forward, just so it would really grab your attention this morning. But uh, I thought I'd at least start out that way, just make sure you're with me. This morning, we're going to take a break from our, our series in 1 Corinthians. And we've been there the past, uh, well, since, since January. And uh, there has been a lot of spicy topics, including sex, the sex talk last week. We talked about church discipline a couple weeks ago. And it's been a really great sermon series that we've had to start off this year. And in some ways, it's going to be hard to match some of the, the messages that have come uh, from this sermon series. But I think the topic that we're going to look at this morning as we prepare to go to the Lord's table this morning, is probably going to look at one of the most important questions that anybody could ask themselves or anybody could prepare an answer. And that question is, who is Jesus? If we went out to McMaster University this afternoon or perhaps went out to Jackson Square downtown and maybe surveyed about 100 people, we would probably get a lot of different answers to that question, who is Jesus? In the Alpha series, they have a whole video on uh, this topic, who is Jesus? And they went out to the streets of Vancouver and London and some of the major cities of the world and asked this question. They got many different answers. Some people said he's a prophet. Some people said he's a revolutionary. Some said he's the son of God. Some said, you know, he's probably just an ordinary person. Or maybe some even said he, just, he didn't even exist. He's just a legend of human history. One, one lady said, he's a real cool dude who gave some great advice to people, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. So is Jesus God? Did Jesus himself think himself God? Jesus is seen as many different things to many different people today. And each one of us must answer this question ourselves. Who is Jesus? Because it's the most important question we can answer and depending on how we answer that question, what difference does it make to our lives today who Jesus is? This morning, we're going to look at the passage that was just read for you. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Colossians chapter 1. This passage is one of the clearest declarations that we have of who Jesus is. And it shows us that he is preeminent over all of creation. And that because of that, he's worthy of us giving all of our lives to He's worthy of all our lives. He's not just someone that we learn about and then dabble in, but Jesus is worthy of all of our lives. And so we're going to look at these two important questions this morning. Who is Jesus and what difference does that make to my life today? So who is Jesus? Look with me at verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God. What is an image? Someone asked you, what, what is an image? Well, you would say it's just someone, something that looks like something. It represents something else. When you look into a mirror, you see an image of yourself. So in some ways, you could say that Jesus is the reflection of the invisible God. You know, in the Old Testament, people did not know what God, looks like, God looked like. In John 1, 18, it says, no one has ever seen God. So where can God be seen? From this passage here in Colossians 1, it says, if you have seen Jesus, you have seen God. If you know Jesus, you know God. 
If you look down at verse 19, it's another way of saying that Jesus is God. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's the ESV or in the NIV. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. When it says all the fullness, it's emphasizing the fact that all of the attributes and power of God can be found in Jesus. This past Tuesday at Kids Club, a few of us in the grade five, six boys class were looking at the question of, of what is the Trinity? Now that's not easy. You got all these like 10 and 11 year old boys and you're trying to explain them something that you're still trying to figure out and wrap your mind around. Because we're dealing with the Trinity here, it causes our minds to kind of like malfunction. We just start computing these different aspects. Well, 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 there's one God, but there's three people. Jesus was God, the Father was God, the Son was God. The Father's not Jesus. Jesus is not the Spirit. We just start putting all these facts in our, in our mind and we just try to compute what this means, and we can't. But the fact that we can't comprehend what it means that God is three in one, this should cause us not to think, well, then that just doesn't make sense. Well, then God couldn't, Jesus couldn't be God. It actually should cause us to be amazed and to worship. For if God truly is who he says he is, it makes sense that we as humans cannot fully comprehend that. Not just the grade five, six boys class on Tuesday night, but all of us, theologians throughout history, we can't comprehend who God is. But it says that Jesus is God. So the first description of Jesus we see here in this passage in Colossians is that Jesus is God. The second major depiction we see of Jesus is that he is creator. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. If you look closely at this verse, you'll see there's at least three ways that Jesus is described here as relating to creation. Do you see these three ways? All things were created in Christ and through Christ and for Christ. When it says that, that creation took place in Christ, it means that creation happened because Christ decided it should happen. Creation did not happen outside of Christ's knowledge or influence. When it says that creation took place through Christ, it means that Christ was the agent by whom God the Father chose to bring the universe into existence. In the Gospel of John, it says, all things came into being through him. And when it says that all creation took place for Christ, it means that all things were made in order to bring glory and honor to Christ. Everything that we see is created for Christ and his glory. Verse 16 tells us, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Heaven and everything in heaven on earth. When you hear heaven and earth, your mind goes back to where in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is just a common biblical phrase that basically just means everything. In the beginning, God created everything, whether visible or invisible. Everything that you can see 
and everything that you cannot see was created by Christ. Every single living and breathing animal, every plant, every inanimate object, whether it's sand on the ocean, whether it's planets in the universe, all of these things were created in Christ and through Christ and for Christ. Everything was created in order to bring glory to the risen Christ. But that's not all. Paul goes on to say it's thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Paul is saying that Christ is supreme. He's preeminent over everything. All the powers, spiritual powers that we do not see. Christ is supreme over all human governments and authorities, preeminent over all unseen spiritual forces that work to tyrannize us through false religion, through astrology, through magic, through any other oppressive system, Christ rules over them. All things were created in him and through him and for him. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Well, not so fast. What does it mean at the end of verse 15 that Jesus is the firstborn in all of creation? or the firstborn overall creation, depending on your translation. Does this mean that Jesus is a created being? So when you get someone knocking on your door, they've got a nice name tag, elder, so-and-so, and they say, well, Jesus, he was just a created being by God. He was amazing, but he's not God. Jesus was created. Your own Bible says it. Open up to Colossians 1.15. He's the firstborn in all creation. So, Christian, what are you supposed to do? The Jehovah's Witnesses got you, doesn't he? Jesus is the firstborn in all of creation. He's a created being. Is that right? Well, no, we have to look at the context. In the Bible, there's two ways the English translation firstborn comes to us. One of them is firstborn like a firstborn child. So in Luke 2, 7, it says she will give birth to her firstborn son and wrap him in swaddling clothes and cloths and lay him in a manger. We know that very familiar story from Christmas. That's one way, firstborn, like a firstborn child. But the other way the New Testament uses the word firstborn is like the most important, again, the preeminent. Not just in the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. Psalm 89 Verse 27, it's used of David. God says, I will make David the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So contextually, we have to decide, does this mean Jesus is the firstborn, like Noah's my firstborn son? Or that Jesus is the firstborn, like David is the most important of all the kings? What does it mean here in Colossians 1? In context, it has to mean the second way. Because we see that it says, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. So when there's two possible meanings of a text, we have to go with the one that makes the most sense within the context it's written in. Otherwise, this is where theological heresy comes our way. So when the Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, he, he's reading this text wrong. He's reading it in the in improper context. He's reading it in one of two ways that the Bible offers, but the incorrect way. Because in the context, it says Jesus is the one through whom all things that were created came into being. 
So another way you could say it is that he is the firstborn or he is the preeminent of all creation, over all creation. He's the image of the invisible God, the preeminent over all creation. So, so far we see that Jesus is God. We see that Jesus is the creator of all things. But is that enough? If Jesus just was God and he created everything, is that good news for us? Was, he could be a God that just creates all things, sets it in motion, and then pieces out, leaves. But is this the God we have here in, first, in Corinthians, or sorry, Colossians 1? Well, no, because it goes on. Look at verse 17. Jesus is our sustainer. We see that he's not only the creator of all things, but he sustains all things. It says he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In the original language, Paul uses the present tense here, which means that the universe owes its ongoing, continual existence to Christ sustaining it. Think about what this means. Nothing that is happening right now in the universe is happening by accident. It is happening because Jesus is sustaining it in the palm of his hands. The reason why the earth is 148 million kilometers away from the sun is because Jesus is sustaining it 148 million kilometers away from the sun. The earth is the exact distance away from the sun it needs to be in order that it's not too cold that we freeze to death and not too hot that we're not melting right now because Jesus is holding it exactly and sustaining it exactly where it needs to be. In Jesus, all things hold together. The reason that you're about to take the next breath, you're about to take and inhale and then exhale, it's because Jesus is sustaining your lungs and allowing you to do that. In Christ, all things, including your body right now, hold together. It's not the Roman Empire. It's not Zeus. It's not Mother Nature that's holding all things together. It is Christ who is sustaining all things right now and holding them together. Jesus is preeminent because he is God. Jesus is preeminent because he's creator. And Jesus is preeminent because he is the sustainer of all things. And as we move on to verse 18, we see that he is also the head of the church. He is the head of the body, the church. When you think of your own physical body, your head is quite significant, isn't it? Like if you lost a finger or lost a toe, you know, that, it wouldn't be good. It would probably hurt. But you would get by. You could probably live still a decent life without a finger or a toe. What about your head, if you lost your head? You're done, right? It's, you're not going on. They don't say, off with his toe. They say, off with his head, because that means they're done. The head is what rules and keeps the body going. In the same way, it's Christ who's the one that rules and controls the church. In the time when Paul wrote this letter to the church at Colossae, they were, they were confused spiritually. They thought that people who had spiritual ex experiences or emotional experiences were the ones that truly knew God. 
And so someone could come to the church and say, oh, I just had this amazing spiritual experience, and people would listen to them. They weren't ruled and controlled by the words of Christ. So when Paul here is addressing the church, he says, Christ, not our spiritual experiences or human experiences or human authorities are, are the head of the church, but it's Christ. And what he says is the authority and the rule of the church. Christ is the true and only source and life for the body, the physical body and us as the church, the spiritual body. And this is, we need this emphasis reminded to us today as well as a church, don't we? We can be tempted to follow some charismatic leader, you know, or we're online and we're, we're looking at some YouTube clip of, that someone shows and some guy says something that looks really smart, but like, if we're not careful, unless we're sure that what that preacher is, is saying is, is rooted in God's word and in the foundation of Christ's teaching, we, we can get confused spiritually as well. We need to make sure and check that the ministry of anyone we listen to is rooted in the words and the authority of Christ and his word. Perhaps especially for us at West Highland right now, when we're in a time of leadership transition, we need to be reminded that this isn't any person's church, this is Christ's church. West Highland belongs to Jesus Christ. No man, no woman, no one else to Jesus Christ. We may be uncertain about human leadership sometimes, but we can be certain that this is Christ's church. Christ is the head of West Highland. Christ is the head of all churches in all times, in all places. And because of that, we do not need to worry as a church. As long as we stay rooted and established in the words of Christ and the teachings of God's word, our church will be fine. Christ is the head of the church. It also says that he's the firstborn among the dead. This means a few things here. Paul is affirming that Christ literally rose from the dead. Paul's affirming that Jesus is the first of many that will rise from the dead again. And we sung about that this morning, that one day we'll rise among the saints. Because Jesus is the firstborn who did that, all those who are united to Christ will also one day rise again. What a beautiful hope that we have in the gospel. So Jesus is God. He's creator. He's sustainer. He's head of the church. He's the firstborn from among the dead. And then in verse 19, it continues to remind us that he's, it says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's God. And then verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or earth, making peace by the blood of the cross, of his cross. Number five, Jesus is reconciler. It says he reconciles all things. How are all things reconciled to God or reconciled through the cross? Well, we have to ask ourselves the question, how did all things become become taken away from God? Or how did all things become fallen? What well, was at the fall, at the fall of, of man that the creation fell away from God? When human sin entered the world, all things, all things were put away from God. And so since human sin entered the world, all things have been longing for creation to be restored for the renewal of all things. 
Romans 8 teaches us that all of creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is waiting to be renewed, just as we are waiting to be renewed. When this happens, when all things are renewed, when Christ returns, it won't just be his people that will be raised and renewed. It will be all of creation that will be renewed to him. All of creation, everything that you see is waiting for the return of Christ and for the new heavens and the new earth will be ushered in and all things will be made new. All things will be reconciled to God and experience true peace when Christ returns. And this process, though, is initiated according to verse 20 because God is making peace for all things by his blood on the cross. And so the first six verses here in this, in this, uh, this passage this morning, verses 15 to 20, they are packed with theological richness of which we could spend multiple weeks on each of the things that I've just spoken about. He is God. He is creator. He is sustainer. He's the head of the church. And he's the one that will renew or reconcile all things. But for the last few minutes before we go to the Lord's table together this morning, I want to look at the next three verses that Paul gives here, which are a challenge to us personally. Because you'll see it moves from just a description about who Jesus is to speaking directly to the church. Look with me at verses 21 and 22. How are we to respond? And you. So now he's turning it around and saying you. He's speaking to you. If you're part of the church this morning, he's speaking to you. And you. So think of Paul speaking even to you this morning. Who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach for him. Again, Paul now turns his attention to you. We know this from verse 2, if you look back a few verses, where he addresses this letter. Who's he writing to? He's writing to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. So he's writing to Christians here. If you're a Christian here this morning, this, these verses are for you. You were once alienated from God, hostile in mind. Do you feel that this morning? Do you remember that you were once alienated from God? I know for some of us that maybe grew up in the church or have been Christians for a long time, you can kind of just think, you know, I was always pretty good. I can think of other people that were alienated from God or hostile to God, but not me. This passage is saying you, each one of you sitting here this morning, were hostile to God. You were estranged from God before what Christ did for you. Alienated. You can probably think of some human relationships where people are alienated or estranged from one another and the relation, re relational tension there is between these two people. That was once you and God alienated from one another. But now Christ has reconciled you by his death on the cross. It doesn't say, but then you put yourself together and started obeying the Ten Commandments and you were reconciled to God. It says you were alienated, but then Christ, because of his death, renewed you and recon reconciled you to God. 
Sometimes we don't feel the greatness of the gospel because we're, we're pretty sure we're pretty good people, even apart from Christ. That's not what the text says here. It says we were alienated and estranged. You have to feel that in order to get the wonder of the gospel or else you lose it. And I fear that so many of us have lost that wonder because we feel like we're half decent people, better than our coworkers and neighbors. They're alienated from God, but I was never alienated from God. In order to truly appreciate the beauty and the wonder of the good news of the gospel, we need to remember from where we came from and how good Christ is to us. That while we were once sinners, Christ died for us. Because of the death and resurrection of Christ, you are now presented not in a righteousness of your own, but in Christ's righteousness before the living and holy God. On our own, we're not holy and blameless. Deep down, we know that. We know that we lose our temper quicker than we should. We know that we think thoughts that aren't right and that we're ashamed of them. God sees all that, but he doesn't look on you now anymore with, the, with that in mind. He looks on you now with the perfect, perfect, spotless righteousness of Christ that you are now dressed in because of the, uh, by faith in him. Jesus was broken so that you could be made whole. What beautiful, wonderful, good news is the gospel. But this doesn't just get applied to everybody. It doesn't just get, get applied automatically. See, the Bible says, again, that the wages of sin is death. When we sin against God, spiritually speaking, we die. And again, deep down, we know that's true. We know spiritually, apart from God, we're empty. No matter what earthly status we have, if we're living apart from Christ, we, we are empty. But again, the good news in the gospel is that Jesus welcomes us in to his family, even in our brokenness and emptiness. And if we come to him, we receive life. God's word t tells us that if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. But it's not just enough to know these truths. You've probably heard them many times. We have to do something with them. At the beginning of this message, I said, the probably the most important question you could ask yourself is, who is Jesus? And then what am I going to do about it, depending on that answer? The world will try to tell you that Jesus was just a normal guy, right? He was just some cool dude who said some nice things, then it just kind of snowballed from there. Is that true? Was it, sometimes the argument can be given from the world today is that Jesus actually didn't believe himself to be God. It was guys like Paul who wrote things like Colossians 1 and put Godness onto Jesus. But Jesus never said that himself, right? Jesus never said, hey guys, I'm God, follow me. It was the, other, the, the early church that did that, Paul and others. Is that, is that right? We need to be sure of this, right? Because if Jesus didn't say it, then are we just putting that onto him? I think this is a really important point for us to be crystal clear on. Who did Jesus think himself to be? Before, again, we go to the table, let me just take you to John 10. 
because I want you to be crystal clear on this, that Jesus knew himself to be God. John 10, 22 to 33. I'm going to read it here. It's on the, on the screen as well. It says this, At the time of the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, It's not for your good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So what do we learn here about Jesus' own view of himself? The people are asking, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that God has sent? He tells them, I've already told you that I am, but you don't listen. He said, if you listen to my father, so Jesus calls God his father, and he tells them that he gives eternal life. Well, who gives eternal life apart from God? And he says that he and the Father are one. He and God are one. Why do they pick up the stones to stone him? Is it because of the good works that he's doing? No, again, it's because of, they say that he's committing blasphemy. They say that he's making himself God by the words that he's saying. So did Jesus believe himself to be God by the, his own very words? Well, yes, he did. That's how people understood his teaching, that he was very clear that he's God. At any time, he could have said, hey, guys, 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 put down the stones. I'm not God. I'm not God. I'm just his messenger. You know, put down the stones. No, he never said that. He knew himself to be God, and he taught that he was God. And so this brings us back to the most important question we need to answer. Who is Jesus? The New Testament teaches that Jesus is God. Jesus himself teaches that he is God. This is not a question we can be indifferent about. It's the most important question that we need to have an answer for. And you see, there's only th really three options for us when it comes to who is Jesus. Right? He's either, he's either Lord, he's either a lunatic, or he's a liar. He's one of those three things. You see, if he is God, as he says he was, then he's Lord. And he deserves not just the dabbling of your life, but he deserves your whole life. If he wasn't God and he knew it, then he's a liar. He's not a good moral teacher. And if he wasn't God, but he thought he was, then he's just crazy, right? Again, not a good moral teacher. We only really have those three options before us. Lord, lunatic, or liar. Who is Jesus? C.S. Lewis, the Oxford, Oxford professor and author of many 
famous books, including the Chronicles of Narnia. Many of you have read that. He wrote this about Jesus and this, and this exact observation. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so this morning I invite you all here to, to decide firmly who is Jesus. No more dabbling. If he's Lord, then give him your life. Give him all of your life. Otherwise, it's not even worth being here this morning. But for those of you who have already made this decision as well, there's one more thing that Paul calls us to in this passage. And it's in, in verses 22 and 23. We need to hold fast then to this gospel. Verses 22 and 23 says, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. And here it is, church. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. The challenge for us this morning is to hold fast to the gospel. Don't shift from it. See, there's no basic Christianity and then advanced Christianity as if we come to Christ through believing in these truths and then we move forward aspiring to greater things through our own reasoning or our own, our own smarts. The gospel is all. The gospel is everything. It's the beginning and the end of the Christian faith. We are sinners saved by grace to this day. Apart from God working in our hearts, we'd be lost and we need to cling to that truth. That's what we're going to be doing shortly as we come up to the table and remember the most important fundamental truths of our faith. God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body and through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And his blood was shed for you. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the gospel that we hold fast to. This is the ABCs and the XYZ of the Christian faith. It's in Jesus who's preeminent over all creation who gave himself for you. So let's just take a few moments now before we go to the table and just, just silently reflect on these truths. Take a moment, speak to God silently in your head, confess any sin that you're aware of, 
marvel and revel in these truths of the gospel. Thank God for the forgiveness that is found through Jesus. And so just my, my blessing as we go on you uh, today would just be that you would find your complete and utter satisfaction in Christ alone, the one who's God, the one who's creator, sustainer, head of the church, and the one who has reconciled you to himself. He's for you. He loves you. Whom do you have to fear? Go now in the peace that Christ gives. Amen. Thank you.